0: with Callan Nolan. I am your host. I am so excited to be jumping into our third episode. Did you know the researchers say that a person has seven seconds to make a first impression? How long is that? All right, it's about that long. (laughs) All right, we're about to jump in. It's coming at you in just a minute. We're going to figure out how that affects our decision making. Of the Absurdly Certain podcast, as I've just mentioned. The theme of this episode, as I teased for a minute there, is going to be first impressions. The importance of the first impression means that we both have to give it a lot of attention into how it reflects on us as people and as our character. And likewise, it also means we have to be wary of the long term effect on decision making. Oftentimes, seven seconds is really not long enough for us to come to true conclusions about what's going to be the best decision. We have to balance the fact that our inherent biology tends to try to make these decisions very quickly in order to operate and make sense of the world. We also have to know that sometimes additional analysis is needed. There's more to uncover than just what our first impression wants to tell us about something that we're approaching. It's been a few weeks now since I've Gotten to recording this. So, obviously, there's some sense of first impression here about the podcast. I don't know what kind of listener you are at this point. Maybe you've checked out the first few episodes of the podcast. Maybe this is the first one you're stumbling into. Either way, I would hope that my lack of publishing additional episodes uh, has just intensified your desire for more absurdly certain podcasts. And if it hasn't, and this is just you checking it out, maybe uh, the time off or some of the time I've taken is going to be additional quality into producing more episodes. So uh, this idea of first impressions has really sort of just been lingering with me. There's so much that meets the eye at first with a first impression, but what is underneath that's really required in order for us to make good decisions, which is what this podcast is all about. How do we build absurdly certain characters that can reveal uh, the right kinds of decisions? and the right kind of reaction to the outcomes of those decisions throughout our life. If you've listened to the first few episodes, you know that the foundational ideas of this podcast are about measuring choices and the why we make them. It's how to know after I've made a prediction about the outcome of a choice. If I was close, was I accurate, right or wrong? I Want to discover what outcomes are truly desirable for me to move forward. And then what areas of my personal worldview and decision-making are certain, if any. So those are our core, core themes. I like to go over those kind of at the beginning of each podcast, either for someone who's new, a new listener, or basically just to continue to reinforce why I'm doing this. I mentioned at the, at the very beginning in the introduction episode that so much of this is a personal reflection, personal personal review of my own processes and how to make better decisions. So it's a good reminder for me. And that's kind of the filter with those foundational ideas that we're going to continue to look at at uh, different areas. So as always, there's going to be three different topics I think that we're going to touch on in varying degrees of the podcast, fantasy, finance, and future. Let's jump into fantasy to start. There's been tons of time now in the offseason, so the NFL fantasy football is in the rearview mirror entirely, unless, of course, we want to talk about the rookie draft, but I have not taken any time at all for the rookie draft. That will have to be for an upcoming episode, if at all. It's a confusing time in the NFL rookie draft for me personally. I struggle to keep it, keep an eye on it, although I have been watching more college football the last few years. But again, I digress. So really the area of fantasy I've been interested in, there's kind of three areas that, I, that I'm interested in. We'll go through really, really quick on this podcast. So I want to get some some other stuff this time around. The three areas are fantasy Premier League soccer, fantasy MLS soccer, that's major league soccer of the US. And then uh most recently the March Madness basketball bracket. So I guess let's, let's kick off with the March Madness. We'll go in reverse order maybe. So March Madness, uh I love to participate in March Madness. I think that the brackets are really fun. Again, this is what I'm all about. It's such a condensed view to take a look at some of the decision making. You have millions of people around the country who are making a ton of these decisions. There's this jam packed schedule full of games. You have no idea whether the good teams and the bad teams are going to really pan out. Uh, typically, you know, the top cream of the crop are going to make their way through. But as is always evidenced with March Madness, sometimes there are upsets that you just can't predict. So I joined in a, a couple brackets and had a lot of success this, this year. This time around, I picked Virginia as a winner for anyone who followed it. Virginia did, in fact, win. So that's a huge boost to any bracket is if you can choose the winner. So the one cash bracket that I was in, I did end up taking the top prize. So I ended up having quite a nice return. It was a $20 buy-in, $180 payout. So pretty, pretty solid return there. And again, that just comes around the fact that I looked at the bracket going into this and noticed that last year, Virginia was a one seed. They were unprecedentedly, is that a word? Unprecedentedly? uh upset in the first round it's very very rare that a one seed in the bracket will lose to a 16 seed there's supposed to be a huge disparity in the ability of those teams but it happened to virginia in 2018 so if we think of this as a a distribution things that are outliers as to what's going to happen what you would expect to happen versus what really happens their loss seemed like a very strange outlier in the negative direction so i thought to myself hey it's the same Basically the same team. Great coach, great athletes. They've been extremely dominant all year in 2019. And perhaps... We'll give it a shot and say that the outlier result this year will be a trend toward extreme success. So what's the ultimate outlier for success in the March Madness bracket? That's to win it all. So that was really the, the driving of my thinking, of course, I got lucky. There's no way to avoid that when you've got so many games that are presented in the March Madness format, you gotta get a little lucky. Virginia tried their best to lose on multiple occasions. I was up late at night watching those games, could not believe some of their overtime and last second buzzer beating theatrics, but that's what makes. March Madness, a ton of fun. So I think there the first impression was, look, Virginia, they're choke artists. Truth is, they had underlying success that builds towards something that you could rely on. And uh, I also felt like some of the other teams that were getting so much attention, Duke, UNC, Gonzaga, uh, the first impression was around some of their amazing athletes. Virginia doesn't sport any of what's going to be probably the top picks in the NBA draft, but you got to go with predictable excellence. Okay, so that's the bracket taken care of. I had to brag on myself since it's nice to get it right once in a while. The other area is a fantasy that I just mentioned. Fantasy Premier League soccer, fantasy MLS soccer. So I would mentioned on the last podcast that I'm doing way worse in Fantasy Premier League than I really would was hoping to do this season. I had a goal for myself of the top 100,000, which would be quite an accomplishment in my mind. Uh, it's roughly, I think it's roughly like top 1% of finishers or something. So I was way lagging behind that at the time. Uh, I've basically just stayed exactly where I was. I got worse for a while over the last six or seven weeks and then I improved and I'm back to where I was around the last time I recorded the podcast. So, I'm currently sat at around 600,000 overall rank out of 6.2 million players, so that's a top 10% finish, which would be acceptable, but we're in the last run in here. It's game week 34 out of 38 in that fantasy format, and uh, really with five weeks left, my newly calibrated goal is to finish within the top 250,000, which would still mean having my rank right now, which is quite, quite difficult, but worth giving a shot. I think the story of this season has been timing, which typically is not a helpful thing. When you're trying to produce results, trying to say that you're going to time it perfectly is really, really difficult to do. Prediction doesn't do super well when you're trying to get your timing just right. What's much more uh, valuable typically with predictions around sports and around finance, around long-term success is not about getting it just right at just the right time. That's what one of my main ideas of, of what I want to explore with this podcast is that it's not about trying to nail it perfectly at any one time. It's more about building long-term plans for success that can then generate outcomes that you are satisfied with but i really do believe that my personal story this this season with fantasy premier league has been moving on some of the most impressive performances that we've seen out of the key players in the game so I wanted to look back in, in this idea of first impressions. My first impression on the season was that Liverpool was going to be extremely strong. I went uh, pretty aggressively for their players to start the season. I, I, as I mentioned, there's a guy named Mohamed Salah, who many regard as one of the best players, if not the best player in the Premier League. He was an extremely expensive asset in the game format, but he's very good. He is currently sat as the number one player in the game from a points perspective. So I did have him in my team starting in game week one. Pull together a quick analysis of my season, though. Uh, the problem is I had him in my in my team from game weeks one through game week eight, and I captained him in the game format. You captain a player that you believe is going to do really well, and their score is doubled. So over those first eight weeks, I captained him five times. He netted me a total of 78 points, which is actually quite good across eight weeks. A, a, an average of almost 10 is really good. But there had been some question about his performance versus his uh price uh, at that point in the season and i went ahead and made a decision that you know what there were other people that were outperforming i'd had some negative slides i was moving backwards in the rank at that time and so i got rid of Mohamed salah in game week eight uh going into game week nine and between game weeks nine and game weeks 22 So that's uh, quite a span, I think it's 15 or 14 weeks. He then went on to score an additional 120 points. And in a number of those weeks, he put up scores that were massive. He had a a game week score of 21, 12, 12, 11, 15. Those are some some massive scores that you get out of players and I probably would have captained him in several of those circumstances, meaning I double the amount of points that I would have gotten from him. So I went off of Muhammad Salah when he became extremely valuable. He he then continued to produce at an incredible rate, and I, I didn't own him and I saw my rank plummet during some of that period I was able because I reduced the the amount of funds I was spending to get several of the other best players Raheem Sterling and Aiden Hazard who are number two and three overall in the game right now but I missed out on the number one player so my first impression was was accurate that Mohamed Salah was going to be an incredible asset through the fantasy premier league season but the fact that his price was so high was was making me feel like it was a detractor and I went off of him, which ended up being a poor choice. And many people in the game who are now elite players that I, I follow on Twitter, look at it around at the, at the Premier League community, uh, managed to navigate the Mohamed Salah peaks and valleys much better than than I have, and were able to especially captain him and make use of his extremely high game week scores when they came into play. On the flip side, I did also have like I think my initial first impression of the season was very accurate i had Mohammed Salah, andrew robertson and sergio aguero are currently sat at the number one middle midfielder number one defender and number one forward i had all of those players in my game week one squad and really should have just been committed i think to not moving any of them but for varying reasons based on their cost or their, their upcoming schedules of games i moved off of them so i think that basically the story here a bit is I knew it going into the season, didn't listen again. It's so easy to fall prey to the error of thinking that you can time something uh, and trying to jump on it and get, get the timing right. And the first impression tells you that you see something and you believe in it, but then you start to doubt it later on. So while it may have been valuable that I chose these players at the outset. I had a correct assessment when I had tons of time to think about it. Throughout the course of these varying factors of the difficulties of their schedules, uh, you, you then worry about the outcome of their production. So again, the key thing is when you believe that your analysis and the underlying trends of what you're trying to do are providing you with opportunities for success, you just have to be committed to the production of that su- success. So I think that that's the life kind of lesson to pull out of that there is that a first impression about an athlete or a player when you know that a player is talented and has opportunity to do extremely well, you got to be sticking with them. It's not until something underlying about the way that athletes produce in their given sport for Mohamed Salah, it's scoring goals and assisting goals. Nothing had changed about his overwhelming ability to do that very, very well. So yes, was he the most expensive player? Sure, but that correlates to the fact that he has been the highest point scorer in the game. So those are the kinds of things that first impressions, you say to yourself, I know what's going to happen here, and yet over time your analysis can start to play with you and lead to some of those unconscious biases that you either say, well, he's too expensive, this is, and you try to confirm that within yourself, or you say, oh, he's, you you know, he can never keep up the production I thought he could. So that's a little bit about, about Muhammad Salah, my journey there. We'll see how I do end up wrapping up. In fantasy MLS, that started out very well. The season is only, it's very young. It's in, I think, the seventh game week. Uh, I'm doing fairly well there, too. start I'm also in the top 10%, but that's a much smaller grouping of teams. Apparently, soccer in the U.S. has not quite taken off, although I believe you heard it here first, that... Fantasy, soccer, and soccer in the United States is going to become huge. I think there's so many talented athletes in the U.S. There just has to be more of them that are going to start to transition into the world of soccer. They're doing a great job. This season, as I've watched it and followed it a little closer, has a different atmosphere to it. The players seem more talented, more aggressive. Uh, The fans seem so into it in the game that they've actually created. And this seems strange that I'm saying that fantasy gaming could have any correlation to the success of the sport as a whole, but the fantasy game that MLS actually has in many ways is I think better than the one that it garners 6 million players in the fantasy Premier League game. So we'll have to see over time, whether major league soccer can at all break into the incredible market share that the European soccer leagues have on the sport. Um, it'd be fascinating to see, but I'm enjoying the, the, the MLS fantasy game. It's a more dynamic scoring approach there's an interesting way to build value there's interesting way to sub players in and out based on their performances so i do like that and i'm I'm keeping up and hoping to really make a push there my goal there is to try to finish in the top thousand which would be pretty cool uh, if i could do that so side note on the fantasy thing as i'm wrapping up this section i thought it was funny i'll give a little shout out to my mother-in-law mj Uh, she made a comment to my wife when she was listening to the podcast and said really so fantasy sports is just gambling and i thought that that was hilarious because it's absolutely just gambling uh you, you don't have to put money on the line but so many people do that's what kind of ups the ante and makes things interesting but i think it just is a great observation from someone who is really not too fascinated with sports or fantasy sports in any way that that's exactly what it is it's small gambling and that's the that's the idea that's what i like about fantasy so much is that it's small gambles many People that are trying to figure out how to be more productive or make better use of their decisions think of the world as making lots of small bets. You want to make lots of small bets because there's instant feedback about how you are doing that and how that's going to relate to how you handle whether you win or lose. And it's going to try to tell you something about whether you're extremely impulsive and whether that pays off for you. Are you high risk, high reward? Are you low risk, low reward? What is most satisfying? And ultimately, at the end of the day, in order to create character that can be certain about things, we have to figure out, I think, our approach to gambling. Uh, There's so many ways in which our psychology makes these kinds of quick bets, maybe even some subconsciously, that can be valuable to us. So I'm trying to tap into something that I find extremely interesting, something that I enjoy doing, and share some of that about what we can learn from it uh, in this podcast. All right, that's fantasy. Okay, just a quick note on the finance part of the podcast for this week. Again, this is increasing cost for us as individuals and societies. I don't really have too much to talk on on this. It's been sort of smooth sailing for me, gotten back into my work the last few weeks. That's why uh, I'm going to claim and use that as an excuse why I haven't produced this uh, another episode of the podcast in a little while. Uh, but one of the things I think for, is it pertains to first impressions, just a Kind of quick anecdote on this for finances personally. Again, I use you need a budget. They have a rule, one of their core rules to how you would use their budget and create financial planning for success is embrace true expenses. And so they have a report called income versus expense. And so really, this is just that core financial philosophy that you need to spend less than you make, right? So if you are producing income through a job or through some sort of trade or whatever it is that you do to create income for yourself and pay your bills that number should be bigger each month than what you spend and that's gonna allow you to then save and invest over time and that's a wealth building strategy that will always be uh, valuable and will always produce some uh, stability for you is to spend less than you make so your income versus expense is quite important that being said if I look at this personally through the first four months here of 2019 it's not a great sign for the nolan household we have a number of red numbers in our income versus expense report and that is basically meaning that we are spending more than we're earning uh for the outset of the year but i think we have some explanation for that based on the fact that that uh my wife has cut down on some of her hours at work and so that is makes sense already some of our income number has gone down uh additionally we were going through quite a number of expenses with the medical expenses that are involved in the addition of our son to our family. So it kind of makes sense. And the other part of this is that in the idea of income versus expense, it's much more valuable, I think, to look at macro trends rather than micro trends, because sometimes there are expenditures that you plan to make. So if in several months leading up to a big expenditure, you have made sure that you landed on the right side of this equation and that your income was higher than your expense, then it's pretty fair game to say, well, yeah, I planned and understood that I was generating my surplus. I was understanding that I was creating a surplus for a large expenditure that had to happen, that I needed to happen, that wanted to fulfill one of my goals. And at that point, you can make a transparent decision and understanding of the macro trend of your income versus expense so no one ever likes to see a red number people are much happier with a green number but if you embrace your true expense and you understand this idea that sometimes you're going to build a surplus in order to then use it all later if you can take the more macro view and that you believe hey when i have surpluses i give this money a job and i already understand that what i earn today is going to be spent on something in the future you want to be able to calibrate your income versus expense over long terms and to sign money into building uh, groupings of money. I mean, I think the most macro view of this is that your retirement fund right is essentially you're building income in the early parts of your life so that you have it there to spend in the late parts of your life. Most people are going to have a net expenditures higher than their incomes in the last decades of their life because that's what you plan to do. That's how you create a stable wealth when you are less able to put in lots of hours working diligently to produce large amounts of income as you hope to do when you are younger, that's fine because at early parts of your life, you were hopefully generating more income and spending less. So those are are kind of the macro trends that you have to calibrate there. And the first impression of seeing oh my goodness I have so much extra money I can do whatever I want is a short-sighted view. It doesn't take you long to feel really good about seeing that paycheck go into your bank account and the numbers go up a bit. It also doesn't take you very long to see that a big debt on your credit card report is not going to go well either. So this is especially a time I think in finance where the the ease of swiping a credit card the ease of online transactions some of that really allows our brain to see and want to do whereas much better to embrace the true understanding of your expenses make sure that you're slowing down taking true account getting transparent with your understanding of your wealth is really an important element here so I would recommend, I suppose, don't rely uh, no matter what your financial capabilities or interests on your first impression when it comes to this. All right. That's a quick note on finance for this week's episode. Lastly, we have here the topic of future. I've got a few thoughts on this. This is kind of sensitive. I I know always because it's these big kind of profound areas of life. There's things that are personal to people and these can change big elements, these are big kinds of decisions. But there's a topic here that I believe is valuable and again goes with our theme of first impressions. This is something that seems societally extremely relevant in the last year or two and personally, I've had to continue to wrestle through some things given some of my involvement in my local community, church and that sort of thing on this topic. So the topic is this, it's injustice and oppression. Basically, these are decisions that when we see areas of people being treated what we would deem to say unfairly or seeing injustice, that we have some gut reactions to this. So first of all, it's often shocking. I think we like to think that people are fairly equitable to one another don't have to read too much history or think too long when you look at around us though to see that there are also quite a few examples of the way that human beings treat each other very poorly and that in these power dynamics you often have someone who's in charge an authoritarian manipulator someone aggressive and then you have someone oppressed or a victim and so that is really the key tenet of injustice, is that just should be a fair treatment. It doesn't necessarily always mean equality. It doesn't mean that everything's the same, but it means that there's fair and reasonable justice being served, that what one person did, said, was that they received what was fair. And we look to this in our society and try to make decisions on this in a number of realms in order to make <laughs> some semblance of peace and order and organization in our society so we have this idea of injustice oppression and, and authoritarians so when this shocking revelation of oppression comes out and we hear that there are genuine hurts genuine cases of abuse we know it receives attention and it needs to be dealt with this has extremely been very relevant for instance in the brett kavanaugh uh, supreme court justice case right we heard about these allegations of sexual assault that came out when he was a young man and there was quite a variance in degree of how people were interpreting what was happening uh how to treat how to believe what to believe uh, was being said right so the very beginning kind of that we have to say is that when there's allegations of these sorts of uh, uh, abuse or this kind of issue it absolutely has to be prioritized and genuine hurts must be dealt with no matter what perceived or real so in this exact example, right? Even if a victim is lying or exaggerating their position or what they believe or remember to have happened, the need for support is evidence. And so, I think the starting point there is that the decision, the first impression, when something, when there's an allegation, and we pride ourselves on this uh, in the United States, is innocent until proven guilty. So, whether there's an allegation, whether you're the accused or the accuser, there's innocence. But we understand that the that the that the guilt that is to come or or not come it has to be dealt with there's certainly no way that we can start to shift into uh the opposite which is guilty until proven innocent and so and again on both sides whether the accuser whatever our first formulation of this person's lying this person's guilty we can't jump to that conclusion we need to be more rational more patient we have to allow the first impression and the unconscious biases that come through in these times of of injustice to try to be pushed to the sides instead go to the hurt both of the hurt of the person being accused and the fact that now that they are being framed in a guilty light and the accuser, that this person is saying that they've experienced something extremely painful and hurtful. Both of these people just need the attention and they need the support around them to allow for us as a society and as a group to then get to the issue of innocent until proven guilty, to get to the facts and to allow them what we would call justice to be served. I find another complicated part of this though that this calibration of justice is always very difficult, depending on who you talk to. Our calibrations of justice are derived from our rule of law, our issues or our perspectives on morality, whether or not the legal system says one thing or another, we often have our own belief systems on how we calibrate what we believe to be just. Something that seems to be a bit of a troubling element of this, in my view, is that there is a strong push that says that the oppressed those that are accusing, those that have said, I've experienced a hurt and I would now like to seek justice because I was perpetrated against, I was something happened to me and I received an injustice. We can't make an illogical jump to believe that those oppressed are more familiar with true justice than to those causing oppression. What I mean to say is when we view an area, even if let's assume for this example that there has been an authoritarian who has who oppressed a victim. We can't assume now that that victim because they're bringing this to light is more equated with what real justice looks like than what the authoritarian did perhaps neither of these people because of their involvement in the issue is really able to now present evidence in a clear way that would be able to say here's how we get to a just end and i think this is why it's so important that we have calibrated understandings of justice this is why the american legal system has been something that we've tried to maintain and tried to protect in such ways to try to keep corruption out, to try to keep influence out. And we could have many, many more podcasts about the reality of that in in our legal system. But my point is, I think in the ideal, we need people who we believe have proven the ability to discern true justice And in a christian worldview in my view we have to go to we have to go to our god we have to go to who we believe is the great um the great justice maker the great holder of justice which is the lord to understand and to calibrate this we can't say well because a person endured great injustice they therefore can present the true answer to what justice is so there's no evidence i believe to to believe that those who endure an unjust action their understand the full tenets of justice we have to be discerning after our first impression it's not impossible to both comfort support and love victims of oppression and injustice while also aggrandizing their perceived understanding of what might cause a more just system moving forward we, we we have to make sure that we don't just promote people to say, wow, they've endured something terrible. Therefore, we now default to what they are asking for or what they believe would be a just outcome. There, otherwise, we're just constantly paying reparations. There's no um, belief. There's no fundamental element of what, again, in the the Christian worldview, uh, you believe is something called mercy and grace. We never get to true justice to allow to say, yeah, something that went wrong. I've been caused injustice and there but but therefore i will move past this and we're going to go for something better uh to to solve the problem so by no means of what i just presented is a complete picture of this but i just thought that in the in the the idea of first impressions it's so easy to make quick judgments on these sorts of these sorts of issues that are very emotional that we side with the accuser, we side with the accused, we want to make it an us versus them, we believe that that justice is a binary topic of either innocent or guilty when really maybe there's an approach that can support people without also then trying to distill their involvement and mix that in with what the true justice looks like. So just a couple thoughts on that. I think that that's an important element of how we go about this. It's not easy, but it takes some practice. It takes some uh, waiting and some true discernment, again, is the word I guess I would use to, to, to try to get to the bottom of these sorts of topics. So just a, a couple thoughts there on, on this injustice. Hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully that sparks some discussion. If there's something that you believe that I am uh, completely wayward on, I'd love to hear from you. That would be uh, that would be great. That's it. That's all I got for this episode. A little bit about the first impressions that come, how they impact our decision making, how it's affected me in the worlds, the spheres of my decision making in the last few months of 2019 as always thank you so much for listening as i ramble on and try to capture and try to improve on this i have now set up i've got a twitter i don't think i've ever mentioned that but i am on twitter at absurdly certain uh you can continue to find the podcast on podbean google play and itunes might be trying to move that out into spotify as well uh hope that you've enjoyed it if you need to uh Rant at me if you hate everything I've said, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, but otherwise, hopefully, this was an enjoyable listen and uh, much love for next time. Thanks. Bye.